So we're going to continue in the Gospel of John, uh, hopefully finish the first chapter today, verses 29 to 51. Can you remember what the purpose of John's Gospel is? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the Son of God is a term for deity. He is God, and we covered that in the last couple of weeks. So Christ is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who has come to save. So I'm not going to revise. I'm just going to go straight into the next section. Let's open up to John chapter 1. And we'll start reading at verse 29, and I'll read through to verse 34. And I'll just pray before we start. Lord, thank you for this uh, opportunity to go through your word. And it's such an awesome scripture today. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I just uh, love that scripture, and I just pray that you'll help us to understand it and to apply it in our lives, to, to be able to comprehend it, Lord. I pray that your spirit will teach us the deep things of God and these, these mysteries, Lord, these uh, things that. We can know intellectually, but, Lord, there's more to it than that. We need to be able to understand it spiritually as well, to to comprehend your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So in previous weeks we've spoken about witnesses. What does a witness do? They speak of what they've seen and they tell, they report to people what they've seen and so people can know. So that's, that's basically what a witness does. They don't have to um, do anything else. We just say what they know. Now, the next day, oh, and um, yeah, so everything we read in John, especially this first chapter, is about witnesses. These people are witnessing, oh, yes, you are the Christ. Oh, yes, you are the anointed one. Oh, yes, you are the Messiah. So this is all proof for us that Jesus is the Messiah. Going to verse 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the next day, this is the second day of the week that the Apostle John recorded. Now, what does it mean, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? What does it take you back to? What, is it, what do you start thinking about when you start thinking about this? What in the Old Testament pops up? What about this? Who said this? Genesis 22.7b Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac said that, that's right. So where did this happen? Well, that was Mount Moriah. Where is Mount Moriah? Calvary. 
So this, this question, it was a big question in the Old Testament, where is the lamb? And what did God say back in Genesis? He says, I will provide the lamb. Now, we fast forward to John the Baptist looking at Jesus as he's coming to John. And we hear John the Baptist's answer to this question, where is the lamb? And he announces, behold, the lamb. Now, in Revelation 5, we hear 10,000 angels join him declaring, worthy is the lamb. So, in the Old Testament, the question is, where is the lamb? In the New Testament, we have, behold, the lamb. He's actually come. And in Revelation, we have, worthy is the Lamb. We're going to be worshipping Jesus for what he's done for us. This is the whole central message of the Bible. Now, the message of the Lamb grows wider and becomes more encompassing as you travel through Scripture. In Genesis, as Abel brought a lamb for sacrifice, he offered it for himself, for one individual. Then, as you go through in Exodus... Each household sacrificed a lamb during Passover. So the lamb was now covering a, or represented a family. And in Leviticus, when the people of Israel were instructed to, instructed to sacrifice a lamb, we see a lamb offered for a nation. And now, in John, as the Baptist identifies Jesus as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, we see a lamb who will be offered for the entire world. So it went from an individual to a family to a nation and now the whole world. It's interesting, what does John's baptism have to do with Jesus as the Lamb of God? Well, it's generally agreed that, at least in the New Testament, baptism was by immersion. It pictured death, burial and resurrection. So when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, Jesus and John we're picturing the baptism, Jesus, you know, inverted commas, um, Jesus would endure on the cross when he would die as a sacrificial lamb of God. It would be through death, burial, and resurrection that the lamb of God would fulfill all righteousness, um, Matthew 3.15. So verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. And we've been through what this means before. It means that Jesus is eternal. He existed before John. He existed even before time. Uh, Verse 31, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So in the Old Testament, the priests would be washed with water before they began ministering. So John is standing in the river and he's like being washed with water. Now, through his baptism, Jesus was washed with water as well, not because he needed cleansing from sin, but it's been suggested that he did this, that he might identify with us sinners. But it also, as I said, pictures the the crucifixion, the death and the resurrection that he would do, he would would, uh, accomplish. Uh, Verse 32, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now this is not the first time where it says, where is it? 
I did not know him. It's like he's saying, I wasn't quite sure who this person, who this Messiah is. But God had given him a sign. God said, who you see the Holy Spirit come upon in the form of a dove, this is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this happened when Jesus was baptized. The Holy Spirit came down in the likeness of a dove and landed on him and remained on him. So that's how John knew that Jesus was definitely the Messiah. And it's interesting that up to this point, apart from his birth, there's no record of them of any miraculous thing happening in the life of Jesus. His ministry started at his baptism. It wasn't until the Spirit descended upon him that he was miraculously empowered for ministry. Now, some people think that Jesus could do miracles because he's God. God can easily do miracles, right? But in Philippians chapter 2, what did he do? What does it say he did? He laid aside his power and he became fully human. So every miracle Jesus did was based upon his dependency on the Spirit. So it was God, or the Spirit, working through Jesus to accomplish what God the Father was instructing him to say and to do. Jesus, when he came down to earth as a man, or as, to be born as a baby, he emptied himself of his prerogatives and his powers. And he lived a life without sin. And he ministered for those three years perfectly because he was empowered by the Spirit. Because remember, the, as soon as he was came out of the water, the, he, the Spirit took him away into the wilderness and he was fasting for 40 days and then uh, he was tested. And it says that he went by the power of the Spirit. Okay, We have that same power available to us today. Romans 8 verse 11, it says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So the same power that was in Jesus raising from the dead and enabling him to do all the things that the Father asked him to do is, is, is in us. So the question is, have you been um, baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, whatever you prefer to call it? Now, if we are a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit is in us. That happens at salvation. But has he come upon you, as he did the disciples at Pentecost, to empower you for greater service? Now, how does this happen? Well, simply by asking. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we can ask the Father to fill or empower us with the Holy Spirit, but we need to realize that it's not his purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the filling of the Spirit, whatever you want to call it, is not to give us a Holy Spirit high or Holy Spirit goosebumps, okay? But that we might be a witness, like John, that we, we might be a voice in the wilderness drawing people to Jesus. Or as Jesus did, he drew people to the Father. 
So it's been said that there's been one, that there's one baptism at many fillings. We see repetitive filling with the Spirit in the book of Acts with the apostles. Here's um, a few verses here. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. And then a bit later on, Peter, talking to the Sanhedrin after he had healed the lame man, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, and he, he gives a speech. And then in verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And then they went home to their friends, and their friends are praying with the other disciples or apostles, I'm, I'm assuming. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they all spoke the word of God with boldness. So this power that we are given to be the witnesses that God wants us to be. So just to clarify, the Spirit in us is a guarantee of our salvation. The Spirit will never leave us. He's a seal of God on us who believe in his name. We as believers belong to God. We have been redeemed, ransomed, adopted, bought with a price. So that our salvation is secure. However, the Spirit upon us is different. It has a different purpose. And I just want to read the words of Jesus here. or um, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. And being assembled together with them, this is Jesus talking, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember John said about Jesus, he was the Messiah, and he would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you get the picture? This, this power that we receive is not for us to have a great time. It's not to have an emotional experience. It's to be the people that God wants us to be. So why did Jesus ask them to wait in Jerusalem? Because they weren't empowered yet. The Holy Spirit didn't come until Pentecost. John twenty twenty two says when and when he has said this, he this is the day of the resurrection. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So they had already received the Holy Spirit, the twelve or the eleven. But they were still told to wait until the Holy Spirit had come upon them before they could be witnesses. Now, what's the greatest evidence of being filled with the Spirit? Well, there's actually a few, but I believe the greatest evidence of being filled with the Spirit is love. They will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. And one of the main messages that John the Apostle gives us is this one. So now I am giving you a new commandment. This is from Jesus, of course. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So we think, oh, I can't do that. I can't love other people as God loves me. But remember that God's commands are also his promises. 
It is humanly impossible to love someone unconditionally, to not be offended when hurt, to continually forgive from the heart whenever someone sins against you. Now, think of all the times you've lost your temper or been bitter towards your husband or wife or son or daughter or family member or friend. Okay, But remember that Paul said in Galatians, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. So why did I read that verse? Well, keeping the law is a reference or a picture of self-effort, of trying hard to be good enough on our own strength. And we can't. But with Christ living his life through me, those Ten Commandments are now God's promises. Through his presence, as we spoke about in Exodus, and therefore his power in me, I not only have the ability, but also the desire to keep the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And this also applies to the other commandments that we're given in the New Testament, like pray without ceasing, rejoice in the Lord always, dwell with your wife with understanding, uh, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Uh, Philippians, um, have this attitude which is in Christ Jesus and count others as better than yourselves. Uh, husbands, love their wives and wives respect their husbands. All these things are humanly impossible to do consistently, and from the heart, we need to be empowered by the Lord. We need Jesus living his life through us, loving our spouse, loving our sons and daughters, loving our uh, friends, loving our church family the way Christ loved us. And just to clarify this, Romans 8, 5-6, to Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that place the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do, for if you live by dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Remember how Jesus was tempted? How do you overcome the temptation? overcome the temptation in the wilderness by the power of the Spirit. He's led by the power of the Spirit. Same for us. We have the same Spirit living in us. Now, I don't want to offend anyone by what I'm going to say now, but I probably will, but I feel like I need to say it. I want you to take what I say. Look, I don't have time to go into a detail about all this. Just just look at the verses I'm going to show you and then and the comments I'm going to make and then take it back and examine it for yourselves, okay? This is the verse I'd like you to be thinking about. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. So I'm asking you not to just believe me blindly. I'm asking you when I say this next thing that you... Um, think about it and determine for yourself whether it's true. Okay, here we go. I believe that at least most of the time, being baptized with the Spirit or filled with the Spirit has nothing to do with being slain in the Spirit or being pushed over backwards. I believe that at, at least most of the time, being slain in the Spirit is just an emotional experience masquerading as a spiritual one. And why would I say that? Because there's nothing in the Bible about believers being pushed over or falling over backwards or passing out in the New Testament. 
Now, I say most of the time because there might be a genuine person seeking to be empowered by the Spirit whose heart is right with God, who has surrendered their will to God's, and this is their way of asking for God's good gift. And this procedure might be all they know. So, And God might God may honor their faith. He knows their heart. So I'm not going to judge or condemn another man or, or woman because God is able to make them stand. So Romans 14.4 says, well, who are you to judge another servant? To whose own master he stands or falls? Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So I'm not doing a big condemnation thing here. I'm saying that those experiences and those activities that I just spoke about are not in the New Testament. So why do I bring this up? Well, because I believe that people can falsely think that they are saved because they went to a meeting, heard something about Jesus making their life better, and then had an emotional experience when they might have been slain in the Spirit. They believe that they have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. But an emotional experience always fades, and they either seek more experiences or walk away from Christianity because there is no real change in their hearts. So if these things like falling backwards and that are not biblical signs of being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, then what should we be looking for? Well, there's lots of um, signs, and I've already spoken about love, but here's another one, Romans 5.13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by what? The power of the Spirit. Okay, so this is the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Joy, peace, hope. The fruit of the Spirit. Hope gives us that strength to get through the hard times when all we can see around us is darkness and pain. Hope is that light in the darkness. What about witnessing? I like Paul's prayer in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. He says, and pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him, as I should. Do you think that Paul was always bold? Do you think it always came naturally for Paul? We hear about him preaching and all that, but there's many times, I won't go through it now, like in, in Corinth and that, where he was scared. Okay, and God had to reassure him. And I find myself uh, relating to Paul quite well here. <laughs> when it's time to witness to people, I get scared. And uh little story of Christmas Day. I took some tracks down. I was intending to go and witness. And I went out with the tracks by myself. And I came back without handing anything back. I thought, oh, I'll do it after lunch. <laughs> and, and then after lunch came... I was like, oh, I'll take Kezia with me. She's really bold. <laughs> it's much easier to hand out tracks when you're holding your hand to your daughter. And she's really cute with the curly hair and stuff. So we ran around and it was much easier that way. But I also prayed and, um, and God gave me the boldness to, to actually stop and talk to people. I really enjoyed doing it is what I wanted to do. But it, it's something that is hard, okay? We, we, it's something that we struggle with it's in, in witnessing to people, in talking to people, in being bold about what's true. And Ephesians 5.18, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And to be filled means to continue to be filled. As I said before and showed you in Acts, this is not a one-off filling of baptism, rather a continual process of something that has to be done more than once. Now there's one more point I want to make about this being filled with the Spirit before we move on. Every time it happens in the New Testament, the people involved are genuinely seeking the Lord. They are praying, committing themselves to the love of God, seeking to glorify God and not themselves. They were humble and understood the truth of the words that Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. He said, John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So if you are seeking to be filled with the Spirit for your own personal gain or just for a buzz or for an emotional high, forget it. You're like Simon the sorcerer, whose heart was poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Here's an example of someone seeking the power of the Spirit for the wrong motive. Acts 8, 18-23 And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive this Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So, I believe one of the conditions that we need to have to receive the Holy Spirit upon us is if there's sin in our lives, we need to repent. God will give his good gift, the Holy Spirit, to those who have submitted to him, who have surrendered their will to his, who obey him because they love him, and who ask by faith, believing. So, let's go back to John chapter 1 and read the next section of Scripture. It's uh, starting at verse 35. It says, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, but he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit, or, as the Septuagint would say, no Jacob. 
Verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So, back to verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So, this is, again, the next day. This is the third day in the sequence. Now, John already said this about Jesus in verse 29. So this is not a one-off statement. Jesus is walking past, he's in the same area, and John the Baptist sees Jesus walking by, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. If you were John the Baptist, how would you feel at this point? You've been working with these disciples training them up, and the Messiah comes along, and yeah, behold the Lamb of God, and off walk two of your main men. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) Never to come back. Well, John was not upset. We're going to learn about John the Baptist a little bit as we go through uh, the book of John. And we see that the purpose of his preaching was not to draw people to himself, but to push people to Jesus, or you know, encourage them to, get, to go towards Jesus. And this needs to be the purpose of our service as well. As we talk to people, as we, our focus should not be on denominations or personalities or kingdom building. Our intent should always be to encourage people closer to Jesus. David Guzik says, John did not care about gathering disciples after himself. He was perfectly satisfied to have these disciples leave his circle and follow Jesus. It fulfilled his ministry. It did not take away from it. Fantastic. John the Baptist was happy when the people left him to follow Jesus because his ministry focused on Jesus. When we get to chapter 3, verse 30, we'll learn more about this, but John the Baptist said, about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 38. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? So, it's a little bit confusing for me what Jesus' first words in ministry were. Was it repent, or was it these words here, what do you seek? These are the first words we see in the book of John. In the other Gospels, we hear him say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. But in the book of John, in this picture that we're getting here, the first words that we hear Jesus speak to his disciples are, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? So I don't think they really knew how to answer Jesus' question. The disciples instead posed one of their own. Jesus asked them what they were seeking, and they were probably thinking, well, you, I'm seeking you, but they didn't really know how to answer that. So for us, the application, what are we seeking? God says, what are you seeking? 
Are you seeking a wife, <laughs> a husband, a better job, help with raising your kids or getting through college or a bigger house or more friends or a better personality, a way out of debt? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul declares, For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. So in other words, all the promises of God are wrapped up in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. We think we're after a change in our situation or help with a difficulty, but like these early disciples, what we're really craving is the Lord himself. For in him, all God's promises are fulfilled. Remember Matthew chapter 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. And they, they had said to him, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. He says, Come with me. So Jesus invited John and Andrew to be a part of his life. So Jesus didn't live a closed-in, ultra-private life. Jesus taught and discipled others by allowing them to live with him. He shared his life with them. And this is what discipleship should be. It's not just, you know, it's good to meet regularly with people, but if you're going to disciple people in a church, uh, especially for ministry, you, you need to spend a fair bit of time with them. They need to see how you live. They need to see who you are in order to become more like you as you become more like Jesus. In a, a lot of churches, um, what they do after people go through Bible college is they take them in as interns, train them up, and they, and they basically give them the menial tasks first and then they gradually give them more and more responsibility as their relationship with God grows and they become more and more mature. They don't just you know get someone straight from Bible college and stick them in front of a church. That's that's the the general um, Calvary procedure is is to disciple people like this and and you spend a lot of time with them and that's how Chuck discipled the main Calvary pastors back then he invited them into his home they worked in the church with him and then they went out from there to start their own churches he shared his life with other people verse thirty nine they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Now, it doesn't say specifically who the other disciple was who left John the Baptist and followed Jesus. However, if you think about this detail, now it was about the 10th hour, this is a personal remembrance. This is something you'd only remember if you were there, I believe. So I think it's John the Apostle who was the other disciple who left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. He, he was such an important decision that he remembered what hour of the day it was, about the tenth hour. Verse 40, One of the two who heard John speak followed him. Andrew uh, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. <clears throat> now here's another guy that's interesting, Andrew. Throughout the scripture, Andrew is referred to as Simon Peter's brother. <laughs> if I were in Andrew's sandals, maybe, I think at this point, I might have been tempted to say, at last, I'm out of his shadow. I found the Messiah. I'm not telling Peter anything about this. <laughs> this is my thing. I'm with Jesus. I'm going to have my future here. This is my moment to shine. But that's not that's not what Andrew did because 
He was one who couldn't help but bring others to Jesus. It was Andrew who introduced his brother Peter to Jesus. And Jesus would later use Peter to bring 3,000 to himself. Acts 2.41 It was Andrew who brought the little boy to Jesus, whose lunch he would multiply to feed the 5,000. John chapter 6, verse 8 and 9 And when a contingent of Greeks came to Jerusalem saying we would see Jesus, it was Andrew who brought them to the Master. John 12.20-22 So it's the nature of the Christian experience that those who enjoy the experience desire to share their experience with others. And that's what witnessing is. We enjoy being around God around Jesus, and we want other people to be around him too. That's how natural it is. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So this this name change back then is important, because their names represented who they were. They, They had meaning more than today, much more than today. So in changing Peter's name, it was as if, as if Jesus said, Simon, you're about as stable as a sand on the seashore, but I see your potential. I see what you will become. That's why I'm changing, changing your name to Cephas, or Rock. Stick with me, Peter, and you will see incredible changes take place in your person. You will be transformed. And he was, if you go through to uh, Book of Acts. Verse 43, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So just read that carefully. It says, The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Then in verse 45 it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. <laughs> we always think about, oh, I found Jesus, but according to Romans 3.11, it is him who finds us. It's not we, us who find him. He's the one who's chasing us. There's no one who seeks God. No, not one. No one is righteous. If it wasn't for God seeking us, then we wouldn't be found. So when Philip witnessed to Nathanael, the evidence he gave was Moses and the prophets. That's verse 45. So perhaps Jesus gave Philip a quick crash course in the Old Testament Messianic prophecies as he did with with the Emmaus disciples in Luke 24. And it's always good to tie a personal witness to the word of God. So we have we explain what's happened to us using the scriptures. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nazareth was an unimportant, forgotten, insignificant town. It was nothing. It was just one of those left-behind towns that the government didn't care about, the people didn't care about. It was messy, it was dirty. No, no one important ever went there or came from there. But Nathaniel also knew that the Messiah would come from where? Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. All right. Now, what does Philip do? Nathaniel's going, oh, yeah, right. You know, when you go witness to someone and they they give you something you can't answer. At the time, Philip didn't know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He just knows in his heart that this is the Messiah. So what does he do? He doesn't start arguing. He just says, come and see. And that's a good answer for us. I can't answer your question right now, but come to church 
and see. See what God is doing. So when people come to us and try and confuse us theologically, like they hand you a Greek New Testament called the New World Translation and say, what John 1 1 really says is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Or they hand you a black book of Mormon and say, the Bible is great, but you also need to read this. Now, we don't need to have all the answers straight away. We just need to know that the Bible is true. We have a rational faith, and it can withstand any argument in any situation. It's true, okay? But we don't have all the answers right in our head all the time. So what do we do? Just say, I can't answer your question right now, but come and see. Come to church with me on Sunday and just watch what the Lord is doing. Come and see for yourself. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. So Nathanael overcame his doubt and he followed Philip. He came and saw. And Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. So the word translated deceit in the Septuagint is Jacob. So you could read verse 47 from the Septuagint as, And said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob. So remember Jacob? He was tricky. He tricked his brother Esau out of his blessing and birthright and tricked his uncle Laban out of his sheep, or most of his sheep. But after wrestling one night with the Lord, Jacob realized that all he wanted, or what he wanted all along, was not Esau's birthright, he, not Laban's riches. What did he want in Genesis 32:26? He wanted the Lord's blessing. He says, bless me. That became the most important thing. And that's the point when God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, from heel snatcher or guile or deceiver and tricky one to Israel, which means governed by God. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. In Jesus' day, students traditionally studied under fig trees. The fig tree was the national symbol of Israel. And it's very likely that Nathaniel was studying Genesis 28, the story of Jacob in the wilderness, as he was sitting under a fig tree. And Jesus is actually referencing scriptures and ideas that he was reading about. <clears throat> Here's a quote from someone. Although it had been said that the softest pillow is a good conscience, Fearing for his life because of his treachery and deceit, Jacob used a rock as he slept. He saw a ladder extending from the heavens to the earth, with angels ascending and descending upon it. Truly, God is in this place, and I knew it not, Jacob declared. That's a paraphrase there. That is why, in the midst of his study of Genesis 28, Jesus approached Nathaniel, calling him an Israelite in whom there is no guile or no Jacob. What's Nathaniel's response? Verse 49. Nathaniel answered him and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So, where's his th theological argument now? Does he care? It's gone. You know, when you bring people to Jesus, all those intellectual arguments, they just generally fall by the wayside. 
you're making reference to the very passage I was reading. How can this be? Surely you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So do you believe simply because I made reference to the passage you were reading? Said Jesus. Stick around, Nathaniel. You're going to see more than that. 51. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So if you can imagine this, right? Think back to your story, Nathaniel, said Jesus. The ladder you were reading about is me. I am the stairway between heaven and earth. I am the way to eternity. Upon me the angels ascend and descend. Notice Jesus said ascending and descending. So angels don't just live in heaven and come down to earth occasionally, fly around a bit and head back up to heaven. (laughs) Angels are ministering spirits assigned to specific saints, churches, and regions of the world. And the scriptures there is Acts 12, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, and Daniel 10. And although they can go up into the heavens, their primary place of residence is with us, with his church, and with the nations. So, I am the ladder, Jesus said to Nathaniel. I am the mediator between God and man. And from that moment on, Nathaniel followed him. Now, I just want to read about being the mediator. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6a. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. So now we're just going to finish with communion. I just want you to think about this this last scripture. Focus on Jesus being the mediator between God and man, the link or bridge between heaven and earth, the only way to salvation. God himself became a man, and as a man he also became the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He paid the debt of our sin. He became sin for us. But not only that, he lived a perfect life and he accounts or transfers that righteousness to us when we are saved. So like the disciples, what should our response be? What did the disciples do when they realized Jesus was the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world? They followed him. So... That reminded me of that song. So I'll um, play it in a sec. But what I'm going to do now is just um, hand the elements out. And uh, as we listen to this song, just remember why you came to Christ in the first place. It's because he's the lamb who paid for your sin. So you could be reunited with God, the Father, in his family. And why should we continue to walk with Jesus? Well, later on, when the disciple Jesus says some hard sayings and most of the disciples have left, Jesus says, are you going to go some as well? And what does Peter say? Because, um, no, no, we're not going anywhere. There's nowhere else to go. Only you, Jesus, have the word of eternal life. Only you. You're everything I need. I just pray quickly. Father, I thank you for the, the bread and the wine, Lord, representing the, the body that was broken. Lord, the blood that was shed in order to pay the price for our sins. And Lord, we just rejoice in the resurrection.
And Father, we just look forward to the day when you separate us out from this world and you take us to be with yourself. And that might come through a natural death or it might come through the rapture. But either way, Lord, we're just hanging out to um, to be with you. That's what our hope is. That's what our goal is. That's what our destiny is. And we just thank you that it's all made possible because of the cross. Help us just to meditate on this and to um, just bring us into a deeper understanding of your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.